This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Tonight I'd like to speak about ignorance. We have a cartoon, a comic strip called Calvin and Hobbes in the U.S. I don't know if that is translated to here. Do you ever see Calvin and Hobbes? Oh, some of you do. Okay. Well, Calvin is this little boy, and Hobbes is a stuffed tiger. But the stuffed tiger only is animate and speaking when he's alone with Calvin. If an adult walks into the room, then he's a stuffed tiger. But when he's just with Calvin, he's his best buddy. So they have lots of adventures together. But this particular strip that I wanted to mention has a scene where both Calvin and Hobbes are waiting on a cold winter morning for the school bus. They have their backs lunches and their mittens and their, their earmuffs, and it's very cold like the East Coast in the U.S. And, and so they're waiting for the school bus. And Calvin says, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to know anything new. I already know more than I want to. I liked things better when I didn't understand them. And he keeps ruminating. The fact is, I'm being educated against my will. My rights are being trampled. And Hobbes looks at him and says, Is it a right to remain ignorant? And Calvin says, I don't know, but I refuse to find out. Unfortunately, ignorance is usually not bliss. The Buddha taught ignorance or delusion was the root of all unwholesome activity. Delusion can be seen anytime there is attachment, identification, fixation, any time when we're not seeing the three characteristics of experience, the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, and the not-self characteristics. Basically, ignorance is present whenever we're not knowing suffering and the end of suffering. There are so many moments in a day when we're caught up in delusion, when we're lost in planning, caught by worry, we're judging, we're fantasizing, we're sustaining suffering rather than turning away from it. We can know sometimes in our body when there's agitation, restlessness, and reactive energies, when we're caught in a cycle of repetitive or destructive patterns. We can feel it. We can know it energetically. Sometimes we can literally feel the sensations in the body as well as know how it manifests in the mind. Usually we're able to recognize this because we recognize that we're suffering. And then our relationship to that knowledge determines if we are going to perpetuate 
or end the suffering. The Pali term for ignorance is avidya. Vidya means knowledge, and when an an A precedes it, it's the negation of. So it's the lack of knowledge. It's being without knowledge. It's unknowing or not knowing. In the Buddhist context, avidya is more, though, than a mere absence of knowledge. Because in the Buddhist context, it implies the element of wrong-knowing. There's a distortion involved, a distortion of perception so that we're not seeing things as they actually are. A Tibetan teacher, Tsogni Rinpoche, said, Confusion is mistaking something that seems to be for what it isn't. At the same moment, one fails to recognize what actually is. Delusion is this ongoing, moment-to-moment, conceptualizing activity of fabricating subject and object that don't really exist. Essentially, ignorance fails to notice the three marks of existence. It fails to notice anicca, dukkha, and anatta. We fail to notice anicca, impermanence, when we are seeing the impermanent as permanent. We fail to notice dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, when we are mistaking what causes suffering as a potential source for happiness. And we fail to notice anatta, not self, when we misapprehend changing conditions as being an eternal or existing self. Ignorance not only fails to notice the characteristics, but it distorts them and misperceives them into presuming that things are stable and lasting, that there is something out here in the world that will provide us lasting satisfaction, and that there is a self or things that we can take to be I or mine. Avidya is the primary error, the mistake that insight meditation practice corrects. The classic example of delusion is to see the rope as a snake. You know that story where somebody's walking along the path and they see a coiled rope? Actually, they think it's a a snake because they just see this coiled form there. They don't look carefully enough. They don't look clearly enough. They don't see the actual characteristics of it. They just get a basic impression seeing this coiled form and are scared and back off, thinking it's a snake. But when they look closely, they realize it's just a rope. Unenlightened beings are continuously misperceiving our experience. In the middle-length discourses, it says, in whatever way we conceive, the fact is always other than that. Wisdom asks us to see without clinging, to recognize the emptiness of things, and to see without clinging to misperceptions and preconceived assumptions. Almost everybody likes to think of themselves as knowledgeable and other people as ignorant. But we will find ourselves ignorant any time we are reacting against pain, wanting to make it go away, 
because we're not seeing the impermanent nature of the body, that it's always changing and utterly unsatisfactory of the nature of dukkha. We'll be ignorant any time we're seduced into craving for sensual pleasures or lulled into complacency. Because again, we'll be missing these characteristics. In many discourses, ignorance is defined classically as not knowing the Four Noble Truths. In the Samyutta Nikaya, it says, being ignorant about suffering, its arising, its ceasing, and about the practice that leads to its ceasing is called ignorance. In the Middle Link Discourses, the Buddha was asked who is wise, and the answer was, one who understands this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is the end of suffering. This is the way leading to the end of suffering. That's one who's called wise. So recognizing suffering, interestingly, doesn't perpetuate suffering. I think most people would think that if you thought about suffering, if you focused on suffering, that you would suffer more. But actually recognizing suffering empowers us to intervene in the cycle that perpetuates suffering. When we react against pain, we have forgotten that pain is the first noble truth, crying to be known. When we indulge in craving, we have neglected to abandon the causes of suffering. When we coast along complacent, we are heedless and not cultivating the path. In the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha is asked, what is ignorance? And he responds, not knowing suffering, not knowing the origin of suffering, not knowing the cessation of suffering, not knowing the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is called ignorance. So we're ignorant whenever we don't see the Four Noble Truths in the context of our lived experience. In this talk, I want to highlight the second noble truth, craving as the cause of suffering. This second noble truth is pointing to what underlies this constant and chronic unsatisfactoriness, this cause of suffering. The wise action to take in response to craving is to abandon it. Sounds simple enough. But maybe first we have to understand craving. Do you ever wonder why we crave? Perhaps we crave because in ignorance we have misperceived our experience and actually believe that our experience is capable of providing us the happiness that we yearn for. In a way, we're gluttons for punishment, reaching again and again for experiences, for praise, for pleasures, for feelings, for relationships, for accomplishments, for all the various things that we think might make us happy. But they never actually satisfy us. I have no doubt that we've all felt the unsatisfactory quality of desire and aversion. We know them as painful states. But ignorance is even more basic 
than these tendencies of desire and aversion. In the Udana, it says, I do not perceive any single hindrance other than the hindrance of ignorance. Obstructed through ignorance, humankind wanders on for a long time. Ignorance is considered to be the root of all unwholesome activity. And according to the Abhidhamma analysis of states, along with every unwholesome state, delusion will be present. It'll co-arise and enable all the other defilements to occur. So where do we find this ignorance and root it out? Ignorance is not a tangible object that we can look at and see. It doesn't have color, it doesn't have shape. But given conditions, ignorance can be activated and we recognize it through its effects. But the origin of ignorance cannot be found. Yet formations of ignorance can arise in many guises. It can appear as anger, it can appear as envy, covetousness, lust, arrogance, and pride. We can observe the ignorance that sustains self-grasping and feel the contraction around that experience of selfing. When we construct and attach to an idea of self, we tend to lose the lightness and the ease. We can observe self-grasping when we identify with any experience. My insight, my pain, my thoughts, my view, I think it should be like this. I think we should do, do it like that. Or more subtly, we may identify with experience as just the sense of being the witness, the observer. Or we might identify with our accomplishments and our attainments and feel pride. You don't need to try to get rid of identification through your meditation practice. All we do is see how self-grasping functions. How does it form? When does this concept of self arise? What interest does it serve? So we don't engage in any kind of aggressive self-bashing. We don't try to demolish or destroy the ego. We just investigate, we notice. We explore the process of self-fabrication as it occurs. And we notice those moments when self-fabricating, self-grasping is absent. When we're not constructing a sense of self, we will notice that we don't cease to exist. We don't vanish into thin air. We don't shrivel up and die. We're not confused, staggering around, wondering, who am I? Who am I? But the experience of the senses continues just without the reference point of a solid self to whom it is happening. We experience then a flow of changing sensations, changing mental states, changing feelings. Vivid, dynamic, and beautifully peaceful 
and empty of self-grasping. Delusion is a mental factor that is only present in unwholesome states. It's not inherent in consciousness. When delusion arises, it functions to conceal the reality of both the object that is being known and the consciousness that is knowing it. It's helpful to recognize the mind of delusion and also helpful to recognize when the mind is free from delusion. So don't pass over all those many moments in a day that are utterly devoid of delusion. Mindful investigation nurtures the wisdom that uproots ignorance not only by recognizing when there's ignorance, but also by recognizing and appreciating all those moments that are free from ignorance. Ignorance can be subtle, so our meditative investigation needs to become subtle and the discernment needs to be precise in order to catch it to catch the beginning of a contact, to observe the passings and the endings, and to see the changing flow of experience. We can investigate change through general features, something like seeing a river flowing past. It continues to flow past, but the river is there. We know that it's changing. We see it changing. But sometimes we have to look carefully at the river. Almost like we just take a scoop of water and put it under the microscope and see what actually is in that river. And we see all the little microorganisms and little cells doing their little things. Similarly, sometimes in our meditation, we must look very carefully and precisely to see the momentary arising and passing of experience, to see the changing nature of the body, not just in terms of the gross or coarse transformations that happen from birth to death, but the arising and passing of materiality moment by moment by moment by moment. Sometimes we can look at the mind and realize that there's a mental state, that we feel sad or happy, and that that increases or decreases or changes over time. But other times we need to look really, really carefully and deconstruct it until we see that that state of happiness or that state of sadness is just composed of rapidly arising and passing functions of mind, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations. And so we look at change, sometimes generally and sometimes very precisely. We can also notice the endings, the perishings, the passings of experience, so that we're not just seeing change as one thing, but we sometimes emphasize the arising and sometimes emphasize the passing. It's said that those who don't see the endings of things might be vulnerable to tend toward the belief in eternalism, in establishing a view of an eternal self that is always existing. And those who do not see the arisings of things might tend to form a belief in annihilationism, a fear that their precious self will be destroyed. 
So with mindfulness, we practice looking at both the arising and the ceasings of things. When you do look closely at experience, you will discover that there is no substantiality there at all. The direct insight into the characteristics of impermanence reveals the unreliability of phenomena. There's no safety to be found in the body, in mind, or in any transient experience. There's nothing to grasp. There's nothing we can hold on to. No feeling can be a source of lasting satisfaction, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, whether it's mundane or spiritual, whether it's derived from sensual pleasures or from the profound bliss of the concentrated mind. Why? Simply because it's impermanent. Through recognizing the unreliability and unsatisfactoriness of things, we stop taking impermanent and unsatisfactory experiences to be self, to be mine. We stop clinging. This freedom from self-grasping, this ending of clinging, doesn't separate us from our friends, from our family, from our society, from our duties. We don't float up in a conceited, arrogant, and enlightened cloud rising above all those mere ignorant fools. Instead, the understanding of ignorance awakens compassion. Compassion towards ourselves and all beings because we know how deep and pervasive the conditioned root of ignorance is. As we recognize that the errors that most people make do not reflect an inherent evil, then judgment and blaming tends to fall away. We ease up on those patterns of criticism and condemning. We see the movement of ignorance as that, a movement of ignorance, an ignorance that all unenlightened beings are vulnerable to. Understanding the mistakes that people make as ignorance rather than evil, we discover a space within our hearts to forgive. We won't hold resentments. We won't nurture hatred. Genuine wisdom will coincide with the arising of compassion for the plight of all who suffer in ignorance. We've all made mistakes in the past. We're likely to make mistakes in the future. I think Jesus pointed this out so clearly when he indicated that no one was pure enough to throw the first stone. This should not encourage a passive acceptance of defilements that allow greed and cruelty to run rampant in the world. But understanding that the root of defilement is ignorance will bring wisdom and equanimity to our encounters with all the unwholesome forces both within our own minds and in our world. We don't all live with enlightened minds 
and we don't all live in ideal communities. So we must muster our courage to face delusion wherever we find it, reducing it in whatever strategic ways we can. Wisdom is not about having extraordinary knowledge. It's not about collecting trivial facts. Perhaps there's not very much that we really need to know to be wise, to be compassionate, to be merciful, to be free. There's a beautiful teaching where the Buddha was walking in a forest with a group of monks, and he reached down and he picked up a handful of leaves. And he said to the monk, which are more numerous, just this mere handful of sinsapa leaves I have here or those in the grove overhead? And the monk said, very few in number are the leaves in your hand, much more in number are those in the grove overhead. And the Buddha replied, Just so, monks, much more in number are those things I have found out, but not revealed. Very few are the things I have revealed. And why, monks, have I not revealed them? Because they are not concerned with profit. They are not the rudiments of the holy life. They conduce not to revulsion, to dispassion, to cessation, to tranquility, to full comprehension, to the perfect wisdom, to Nibbana. That is why I have not revealed them. And what is it that I have revealed? Just this. This is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is the end of suffering. This is the way leading to the end of suffering. Why? Because this is concerned with profit. It conduces to full comprehension, to perfect wisdom, to Nibbana. Perhaps wisdom may be expressed not only in the clarity of knowing suffering and its cause, but also in the clarity of knowing that there is so much that we don't know. When we can admit that we don't know, we're humble enough to keep learning, to keep investigating, to keep exploring, to keep observing, to keep practicing. One of my teachers in the USA, Joseph Goldstein, said, after all these years of practice and teaching, I know much less now, and it is a great relief. I'll end with one of the Enlightenment verses from the early monastics. Just as a rain cloud would settle the dust that that has been raised by the wind, so all conceptions come to rest when one sees clearly with wisdom. <laughs>